This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, mamma mia, mamma mia. Mamma mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, for me, for me. Welcome to the very first Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm the editorial director of Rocks Back Pages. I'm sitting here with Mark Pringle, who is the chief archivist of the Rocks Back Pages online library hello barney <laughs> beautifully delivered mark <laughs> we are here to tell you what is new on rocks back pages this week we're going to start with the great freddie mercury about whom a biopic has just been released uh the rather reviled as far as i can tell bohemian rhapsody whose u.s release date is today november 2nd we uh, are featuring an audio interview with the great freddie from 1976 by cream writer robert duncan what did you make of it Mark? well I, I, it's fascinating i mean the, the sound quality isn't great but it's certainly perfectly listenable it's february 76 they're on the what's the album night of the opera night of the opera uh, tour where they'd just been in America for about uh, maybe about three weeks, having toured the UK and Europe. Um, Freddie comes over really well. He comes over as kind of fairly sweet guy, not a sort of braggart that one sort of imagines from his sort of stage persona. And uh, he talks in quite good detail about the nature of the band, about their interestingly academic backgrounds, about the management problems they've had. And goes into a, quite a lot of detail on Bohemian Rhapsody. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good interview. Are we going to listen to a little bit of Freddie talking about Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah. Great. Let's do that. Do you have any interest in uh, making uh, films, uh, writing films, or, or something possibly based around a song? Or, um, uh, that idea appeals to me as well, but it's, it's something that's way in the future. I'd like to sort of put across, there's so much more that Queen can do at the moment. The nearest we've got to film is that we made a film of Bohemian Rhapsody, which was, uh, coming back to your question, which is the nearest we've got, something trying to put across that kind of musical feeling into, into, into a film of, of just us playing. I mean, obviously it wasn't a... Oh, not, not, not a kind of... Uh, no, 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 this was... But even then, if you see this film, it, it, it's a step further. It's not just... You've got to see it. It's not just us um, performing. It's performing plus us in a very different mood trying to put across this sort of the drama of it all and uh, it's, it's sort of worked six minutes of it 
like stuff like uh, Galileo from uh, exactly. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine how we would do it? But we we put an astronomer in the band, so I suppose this. Uh, it's it's just uh, in the film we made capture this the dynamics of the more practical. So, I mean, so we've so left. parts of it are nonsensical. Uh, they, Good. They're that's... maybe they're funny almost. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. You know. you you mean the opera opera bit? Yeah. The Galileo. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, they are. So they're meant to be. You see, there's what well, not. Well, that's not for you. But they're meant to be. That's that's sort of. I wanted to use that certain that section as just strict opera, but opera in the sense that that a lot of for the layman. You know what I mean? Because I didn't I didn't want to sort of put across. The opera as a... I wouldn't try to tell people, look, this is an authentic piece of opera, which, which and I've done a lot of research into it. Like, that's, that's, that's silly, because I, I don't know that much about opera. But I was just trying to say, look, this is Queen's way of, of using opera, operatic overtones in rock and roll, if that makes any sense. And therefore I had to use, call it cliches or whatever, and things like Galileo, and certain, certainly, certain overused um, phrases in, in opera. Galileo's what's the point to to to, to create it was I mean you know one doesn't have to sort of keep to, to uh, lyrical sort of format all the time one can sort of I mean uh, the, the thing I wanted to put across in that piece was just more drama and uh, an atmosphere more than anything I wanted to create an operatic voices and things and in that section I think the lyrical content took second place I was well aware of it yeah. I wanted to do that I wanted for that I just did the worst for the sheer sort of uh, lyrical, no, no, not so much lyrical, the, um, the pronunciation to the yeah. power and anything else. It's syllables. Yes. Um, do you laugh? Or, or did you laugh when you wrote that or do you ever laugh when you wrote People laugh. I mean, I do laugh. I mean, when, when we sometimes come to the Galileo, especially because I got Roger to sing such, there's a very, very high sort of things. things. They can be, they are sort of, <coughs> At the point when we're actually doing them, it's quite possible. One must try and keep a straight face to put it across because, oh, God, you know, we have got some silly things in our time, but I mean, that did take the cake. Because we did do something like 180 voices between the three of us, four of us. And after, after you've done no, 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 no about um, 180 times, you feel you're in a lunatic asylum and, <laughs> and you feel, or is it all going to be worth it? But then it all falls Okay, so that was Freddie Mercury talking about Bohemian Rhapsody, which at this point, February 1976, is only, well, it's less than a year old, isn't it? So it's an extraordinarily new and innovative thing, both in terms uh, of the recording, in terms of the fact of the length of the song, in terms of the video. Yeah, he he talks actually... um, one point, what you've just listened to was uh, Robert Duncan asked him, did he have any plans to make a film? He says, actually, you know, we've just done one for this, for this, 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 this song. It somewhat erroneously claimed that it was the very first rock video. Now, as we all know, that's simply not true. Stones and the Beatles and many others did promo films for showing on television way before that. But it is definitely, I hate to use the word iconic, but it's an iconic moment in the history of the music video, without a doubt. Now he goes into it in some detail, goes into the nature of the song, as it's six and a half minutes long, something like that. Yeah. Um, the decision to release it at full length, uh, rather than butcher it, to release it a single. It's, it's, it's good, it's very interesting stuff. So what you heard there was a taster, but it's, um, it's about an hour long and there's a lot of, really really strong stuff in it like you i was surprised by how 
sort of serious Freddy is, yeah. you kind of expect him to be, I don't know, a little camp. <laughs> a little camper <laughs> than he is. Um, and, you know, he really uh, talks very seriously about Queen yep. as uh, a group of four very different individuals. Yep. Also, sort of Queen is almost like a business. No, but I think very much like that's, as, you know, if you listen to the interview, that, that, that's very much something that, that, that comes, comes through, it, it, is that because of their uh, management problems, uh, that they had in the past, they've effectively, even though they have a manager, have become self-managing in so far as they they've learned the insides out of the business, um, but not in a cynical way. Not like you know, this is all about making money and so on and so forth. It's just they want. It comes over very much from Freddie is they want to create conditions whereby they can do their best work. Uh, and um, he's also uh, he's touchingly sort of impressed by his colleagues' academic records. I mean, he goes on at some length about yes. Brian May's astronomy degree and so on and so yes. forth, um, and leaves his art diploma he to, to the very end. Yeah, he does great he, humility. He briefly mentions it. I mean, the, 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 the notion being that he's the only member of the band with an arts background, yeah. while the others are all doing we're all doing academic subjects and so on and so forth. So anyway, very yeah. Nice. No, I I really enjoyed it, and it and it. He talks about Queen being sort of different, really, from any other rock bands and wanting to sort of appeal to a very, very diverse audience. And it kind of, it reminded me, A, of sort of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody being number one on top of the pops week after week after week, seeing that video over and over (laughs) again. Um, But also just the sort of, you know, kind of ambivalent feelings that I certainly had about Queen and probably still do have about Queen. Uh, Yeah, I I, I think that's true. Interestingly enough, in the Rocksback Pages office recently, we actually listened through to some of their earlier albums and realised what a great hard rock band they were. I mean, they, they, they could knock out very, very good, tough, hard rock. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody, in a sense, was was a sort of distraction from what I'd initially understood the band to be. I mean, I'm about them, yeah. But I think they've always given me a degree of pleasure, and sometimes really great pleasure. Um, they could rock, as, rock. as, as John <laughs> Savage would say. They rock, and and of course, you know that brilliant moment in Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, yeah. Where, where they just dun, 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 let dun, dun, go, dun, 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 and, yeah. and one always now thinks it's the moment in Wayne's World where in the car and the car <laughs> rocks. And, I mean, but it, but it, it really does yeah, rock, yeah. and of course they could. I mean, they made some great pop singles. They were a great, they were a sort of. I mean, they were certainly inspired by Zeppelin, and he yeah. mentioned Zeppelin yeah. uh, among the influences that Robert Duncan talks to him about. But anyway, I mean, look, I'd never sat down and listened to an audio interview with Freddie Mercury before. So for me, it was interesting. I think he was an extraordinarily compelling yeah. star. I, I, I think also in the interview that, I mean, he, he deals with questions which he clearly has not a great deal of patience for very well. The thing about the audience is interesting because I think um, that Robert Duncan was sort of implying that getting a very young audience somehow undermines the credibility of the band. And Freddie was having none of that, that he actually wants as broad an audience as possible. Welcome. I think one thing about Freddie Mercury is he loved his, he genuinely loved his audience in a way that many stars don't. Mm. Um, you can see him on stage in films and so on and so forth. And this is a guy who absolutely adored playing to an audience. And I think he really genuinely loved his audience yeah. in, in a way, in, in a rather special way. Yeah. 
Shall we get on to the new homepage? Well, uh, yeah, I was just going to, in fact, the segue that occurred to me is that among the influences yeah. that, that Freddie talks about is Joni Mitchell. He mentioned, everybody seems to mention Joni Mitchell, Indeed. don't they? So he, even Queen were influenced by Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Um, and as it happens, Joni is 75 next week. Um, and so, uh, for a number of reasons, we are celebrating that on the RBP homepage um, with with four items um, um, from the RBP archive. This ties in with the fact that we actually published uh, a, a collection um, of interviews and reviews um, uh, a couple of years ago, but it came out in America last year uh, called Reckless Daughter. It's a it's a Joni Mitchell anthology, essentially, from some of the very first stuff that was written about her when she was performing, you know, like the Troubadour in yep. L.A., yep. right up to, you know, the most recent interview that she gave. So, um, you know, we are great Joni fans in the RBP we office. Certainly are. We yep. listen particularly to Court and Spark yep. a lot, don't we, Mark? Yep. And one of the items that uh, we've selected for this week for the homepage is a review of Court and Spark by Michael Watts, one of the very best melody maker writers of that era. Um, and I think that Court and Spark certainly, along with Hissing of Summer Lawns, remains my favourite period of Joni. What, yeah, what's your take? Well, I mean, actually, for me, it was a love affair record. I was seeing this, I was just about to start art school. It was the summer before I started at art school. And whilst I'd been at an education, further education college scraping together enough O-levels to get into art school, we made a trip to Brittany and I met this woman and I spent part of that summer commuting back and forth. And that record became sort of the record of that, curiously, of that relationship, even though it bore no relationship to it whatsoever. Very important record for me. I mean, I'd listened to Journey before. I'd kind of liked Blue a bit. But, you know, I mean, I'm talking about, let's say, I was, I was 18 in 1974, up to that point, Joni was someone who girls listened to. That sounds a terrible thing to say, but you know those the, the folky the folky albums were sort of kind of things that the girls at school listened to. Court and Spark had so much more richness musically. She there's a there's really great musicians playing on it, really interesting and elaborate arrangements, beautifully played. And as a bloke, that gave me something to kind of get my teeth into. Who as a bloke who wasn't really a folk fan at all. So it, it it was my gateway drug to Joni, without a doubt. Yeah, you were, you were a free man in Brittany. I was a free man in Brittany. <laughs> free man in Saint Malo. Yeah. So um, we're actually putting together a Spotify playlist uh, for, of twenty tracks to mark the occasion of Joni's seventy fifth, and I think um, I think I've chosen six tracks: three from um, Court Spark and mm-hmm. three from Hissing of Summer Lawns. Mm-hmm. To me. Those two albums are, are, are just sort of ineluctably conjoined because it's some of the same... You don't add Hajira to that list. I think of Hajira as very different, actually. Okay. Um, I do. I, it's, it's Joni going in a, in a different direction. So you, I, I love the sophistication, the richness, the textures, the, the chords of those, those sure. two mid-'70s albums. Sure. I do think they're among the greatest records ever made actually and I rather agree with you I mean actually the first 
Journey album I bought was probably for the roses. I was too young to buy blue. But I've never quite knelt at the altar of blue as so many do. No. I mean, I don't know why. I don't. I just don't think it's as great as people say. I mm-hmm. understand the kind of mm-hmm. naked intimacy and confessionality of it. I think that's true. I, I think the one thing that certainly could caught in the spark is the first example of is we forget how great a musician Joni Mitchell was. Yeah. And in a way, the way she was before sort of downplayed her own abilities and imagination. And Court and Spark was the first record where she was kind of saying, actually, no, this is who I am. Mm. I, I can not only can I play, I can get other people to play mm. uh, uh, and produce really interesting textures and really interesting sort of music. So, yeah. And, of course, there was a sort of reaction, if almost a backlash to this very different kind of Joni that she was presenting. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it, the album Hissing of, of Summer Lawns was not very well reviewed in Rolling Stone, for example. I think it was, I think it, it, they called it the worst album of the year. And <laughs> I remember when I interviewed her in, I think it was 1994, you know, she, there was this idea that she had no right to, to sing or write about kind of affluent people yeah. in Malibu, for example. And those albums are very... I mean, Court Spark is very LA. It's oh, very Beverly Hills. Entirely. It's very Malibu. You know, and, yeah. and there was that picture of her in the swimming pool in some, History of Summer Lawns. And, and people were like, this is... Joni has somehow... It's like D- Dylan going electric. And not <laughs> she's sort of abandoned us. She's betrayed us. And, and I remember her saying to me, do you know, I mean, I'm a writer. And yeah. I think I can write about whatever I want yes. to write about. It doesn't mean that I necessarily approve or endorse yeah. people the lifestyles of the rich uh, and famous but this is this was my new environment I think you can also add to that there was a sort of sexist component in that absolutely that, 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 that as a woman um, she was only believable to men if she was like barefoot in the kitchen in her mm. Laura Ashley dress mm. and the moment she starts sort of appearing as someone with money with time with notions of luxury and all kinds of things like that it completely undercuts that um so yeah i mean i, yeah. I, I can't really develop that much further but i mean i think you're right that, that, that joni has like so many female artists and musicians struggled with sexism and she was one of the first to really say i am you know, I am my own woman, and she intimidated a lot of men, mm-hmm. and they didn't like it. Yeah, uh, she worked her way through quite a few men who just simply couldn't really kind of cut it. I think, <laughs> you know, in the, in the journey orbit. I yeah. mean, from from Graham Nash through to I don't know John Guerin, who's the drummer on uh-huh. these albums we're talking about. You know, I mean, and, and she's a spiky character. There's oh, no oh, doubt. Right. Oh yeah. Well, I have to say, the woman that that I talked to for for i mean i think almost two hours back in in the 90s was extremely charming vivacious funny and mm-hmm. and and even flirtatious i really liked Good her grief. enjoyed her yes they're, i know they're, they're i could have been yeah anyway <laughs> moving <laughs> swiftly <laughs> on <laughs> as you like to say shall we just um en passant let, let us note that every week on Rock's Back Pages we feature one of our writers. Um, we call this spotlight almost famous after the Cameron Crowe film. And this week we are featuring the great Adrian Devoy, who is really one of the very best writers from that kind of batch of Q mm-hmm. uh, guys and girls um, in the 80s and 90s. And um, 
So uh, we're very pleased to have Adrian on board, came on board probably two or three years ago. So we actually got one of his very earliest pieces, not for Q, um, but an interview that he did with, with uh, Morrissey and Johnny Marr from 1983 from that magazine, I can't even remember, it's called International Music Musician. <laughs> International and, Musician. Yes, uh, International yes, Musician. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, horribly designed, <laughs> dreadful, dreadful covers. But I, maybe that's where Adrian got his kind of foot in the door. Um, and then a piece I remember really enjoying from Q from 1994, where he managed to get um, Björk, PJ Harvey, and Tori Amos together around a table or in the same room, uh, a sort of summit meeting between these these three extraordinary talents. Well, I certainly am a huge Björk and PJ Har- Harvey fan, slightly less so of, of Tori Amos, but I think I think Björk and uh, and Polly Harvey are two of the most extraordinary female you know writers mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and artists that uh, pop music has produced. So, and then finally, uh, an interview with Lionel Richie from 2015 for the Mail on Sunday, for whom he regularly contributes. I haven't read that. What? What? How does Lionel come out in it? Lionel comes out really well. I mean, I think he, he, he sort of arri- <laughs> arrives, and I think Lionel's sort of getting out of his Beverly Hills swimming pool. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, no, he comes over very well. Yeah. Actually, it's a it's a really good interview. Um, so that that's sort of what we're featuring. Free the Joni staff. Mm-hmm. And Adrian's pieces are, are some of the free content on Rock's Back Pages. Um, why don't we look, Mark, at some of the pieces that you have overseen in terms of going into the library? Sure. Um, well, let's start off in 1966. Dawn James. Dawn James is a wonderful writer. We're very glad to have recently got her on board Rock's Back Pages. She wrote for Rave and Mirabelle. Um, and in a sense, she's less a music journalist than a personality interviewer, but she happens to be interviewing musicians. And I think it's immensely sensitive that she, she, she writes about their personalities in a detail which was very rare in the 60s, that, certainly at that point. Anyway, this is an interview with Keith Moon, where he actually comes over as a complete tit, frankly. Um, <laughs> in, you know, I mean, he, he, he's, he's, he's a sort of a ghastly show-off at school that you just want to thump, and, and I think that's actually who he was in many respects. Well, he's the original kid with ADHD, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, um, really? and he's, he, he, he just keeps making increasing some of the hyped-up statements in order to probably to wind up Dawn. And she's, one thing about Dawn James is she's completely unflappable. So she sort of, you know, just takes it in her stride. Next thing I'd really like to... Well, there's uh, Max Jones interviews Aretha Franklin, which is in 1970, which is terrific. She's a difficult person to interview, but he gets quite a lot out of her. Very early interviews, uh, the lovely, marvellous Bonnie Raitt, from, by Joel Selvin from the San Francisco Chronicle in 1972. Um, Tony Cummings, great writer about black music for Black Music Magazine, does a thing on sort of the, 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 the lower underbelly of the Philadelphia soul scene. I want to just quickly interject and ask about the piece about Guy Piao, if that's how you pronounce <laughs> it. Uh, Guy Pile art, but um, about yes. his extraordinary rock uh, dreams, but rock dreams yeah. which um, I, and it just I mention it because it was it had such impact on me when I bought it when it came out in in I believe seventy four it was uh, uh, absolutely and it yeah. was just a sort of it was such an interesting visual take that, on rock mythologies. It, it, it certainly was. This is an Andrew Bailey interview with him for Rolling Stone in seventy four, um, and. Um, as a book, I mean, again, I 
my, my brother bought it when it came out, and he's particularly strong, and again, this is mentioned in this piece, on particularly the Rolling Stones. He, 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 he kind of keeps revisiting the Rolling Stones throughout the book, uh, and, and at the time, Rolling Stones were still sort of the height of their devilish mythology before. In fact, as it happens, they were on the slide by then, but, but he, they, they're very much central to this book. It, it is an extraordinary piece of work. Well, it's that incredible picture of them in sort of stockings and suspenders, yep. isn't there? Yeah. Um, which was really sort of, <laughs> was, um, it really did stick in the mind. But I did, I still have, in fact, I, I lost my original copy mm-hmm. and re-bought it in yep. one of those second-hand stores on the Charing Cross Road, I think it was, or maybe it was Record and Tape Exchange. Uh, I loved the book, I still love it. Very interesting. I mean, for me, in fact, again, it's mentioned in the interviews, uh, Diana Ross in a limousine, completely kind of glittery and shiny, and through the windows you see a big black ghetto and people standing on the street corners. Brilliant. And, uh, I, I thought that, that was terrific at the time, and, and actually, having done this, I went and looked back through my copy after uh, proofreading this interview and uh, found it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, moving on, um, 1979, Silver Sim- Sylvie Simmons sees the runaways at the Whiskey A Go-Go. I've learnt after I proofread it, she talks about bad bad atmosphere in the dressing room, it not being a great show. It was actually literally one of their last shows. I think they played two more shows after that before right. they broke up. Right. Which is at this timely because, of course, the Joan Jett documentary, yes. Bad Reputation, has just come out. Yep. Yep. Uh, Jesus and Mary Chain, very early interview for, by Neil Taylor for the NME. They come out with some great quotable stuff. Um, I have a certain fondness for the Jesus and Mary Chain. Um... Uh, a large interview, a long interview with uh, Randy Newman by Mark Rowland from 1988, musician, 1988 in musician. Randy Newman always gives great interviews. He's just such an interesting man. He certainly man. does. I've been uh, privileged enough to interview him twice. He's He is a delight. Um, and I actually pulled... The, the poor quote that we feature on the homepage every week is comes obviously from one of the new pieces. Uh, this seemed to be a very timely quote to Mark Rowland, 1988, when Land of Dreams came out, because Dixie Flyer is this extraordinary song about being a Jewish kid from Los Angeles mm-hmm. who goes every summer um, to, to spend the holidays with his relatives right. in Louisiana, and it has all those extraordinary lines about doing what the Gentiles do. Um, so there's this. So they talk about being Jewish in America and this quote um, right on the back of the appalling shootings at the synagogue in Pittsburgh really caught my eye and I know caught yours to be Jewish in America is different no one wants to be an American more than a Jew Irving Berlin was more American than John Wayne Um, so we feature that prominently on the homepage this week and um, yeah I mean um, I've not read the interview apart from that quote but I know it It'll be great. It, um, it, it, it is very good. He talks, in fact, in some detail about his relationship with the South and so on and so forth. Anyway, it, it, it's great stuff. Lastly, last thing I'd like to at least feature is um, Neil Kilkarna's marvellous inter- uh, review of Wu-Tang Clan's Forever, uh, Melody Maker 97. Neil Kilkarna is kind of a favourite writer of mine. He's one of these people who just sort of goes charging off on sort of marvellous rants. He claims that this is possibly the greatest hip-hop album ever. <laughs> I posted that on Facebook and he came back saying, well, I may have changed my mind slightly. Well, there's been a lot of hip-hop albums since. <laughs> yeah, but also, so but, but, but also you know, he sees its faults now. It is overlong, it is sprawling and chaotic. <laughs> but the sheer mad enthusiasm of his review is just really com- compelling reading. It's terrific stuff. 
Well, we love the Wu Tang, don't we? We um, do. We do. I know. I know. Lots of kind of white. One of them, critics love the Wu Tang. One of them claimed to know me in San Francisco. Airport. We met them, didn't yeah. we? And he said, "I know you." This is a very bizarre encounter where we're waiting <laughs> at the airport, San Francisco <laughs> airport, and we suddenly realised that in the departure lounge with us was most of the Wu Tang. Yes. Not that I'd ever done a head count, <laughs> but we did get into a conversation with You God, that was who was. recently published his sort of memoirish book, That's right. which Faber published. Yeah. Um, so I mean, but. I I did find them. Ext- I, I just loved what Derisa did musically. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, quite apart from the sort of quality of you know of, of the the hip hop guys, this the rappers, yeah. the, the the method mans, and so forth. I could listen to a lot of Wu Tang just on the basis of what he does with sort of Southern Soul yes. samples, yeah. which was really unusual at the time. I, I think the other thing I find interesting about Wu Tang Clan is is that. Whilst they were nationally huge in a huge musical form, they were actually extraordinarily local. I mean, they were Staten Island. Mm. Um, they weren't part of the major sort of African-American urban centres of Atlanta or New York or Los Angeles and so on. I mean, Staten Island is technically New York. Yeah. But, but there is, which is kind of is part of how they sort of developed some of this cottage industry approach to what they did, um, which they then extended when they moved to, what's it, Illinois and built bought a farm or something mad like that. But the, the, I just find the dynamic of within them and of them really interesting. And yeah, you're right. They, they, they produce some lovely sounding stuff. A couple of pieces that I, I'd like to just flag mm-hmm. up um, from the last sort of 20 years. Uh, one would be um, Mark Kemp was at one time the reviews editor or maybe even features editor at Rolling Stone. Um, and he then went on to very cushy job at MTV in New York. Um, he is now back in you know his, his sort of home state of North Carolina yep, yep. where is where is where he he lives. So he's a southern guy wrote an amazing book called Dixie Lullaby. Yep. Um, and uh, until recently was the editor at uh, Creative Loafing online and he wrote this piece about being at MTV in the real kind of heyday of the boy band era when the Backstreet Boys roamed roamed the land and the hearts of teenage girls. So it, it, it's from 2012, and it's a very interesting, um, you know, fly on the wall piece about being right in the midst of, of that kind of hysteria. Um, and then finally, um, there's a very, very, very long interview by Larry LeBlanc for Celebrity Access with Toby Mamis, who happens to be one of our writers as well. And Toby has an extraordinary uh, uh, career that takes in management, writing, journalism, publicity. You know, he's sort of, he really is a zealot of the industry. <laughs> he's, he's sort of there. He, he's known everyone. He's worked with everyone. Most famously, um, you know, Alice Cooper. I think he's still involved in Alice Cooper's management. But he's sort of there in the background with, with, with John and Yoko around <laughs> sort of White Panther, John Sinclair era. You know, he knew the New York Dolls. You know, I think uh, 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 the Runaways. Um, I mean, he claims that he tried to get Kim Fowley to produce um, The Runaways doing I Love Rock and Roll. And Kim wouldn't do it because he couldn't get half of publishing. <laughs> so Joan Jett 
post Runaways, yeah, yeah, ended up having this sort of ginormous hit with it. So you can imagine, going, Kim's probably still turning in his grave at the memory of that. But it's a it's a great interview, um, and we're delighted to have both Larry and and Toby on the site. We were joking earlier about Toby's. Well, we've got five writers called Toby. I know, I know. And one of them's a woman. There's only one Barney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I keep, I keep all the others out. Um, so that's essentially uh, what we're uh, bringing live to you on Rock's Back Pages this week. So this has been us, Mark Pringle, and myself, yep. Barney Hoskins, for Rock's Back Pages. For Rock's Back and Pages. And for you. Thank you. That was the Rock's Back Pages podcast, presented by Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle. The producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find all the articles they talked about and thousands more, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Looking to expand or move your company? Look no further than Ohio. With a talented workforce for in-demand industries like tech, healthcare, engineering, manufacturing, and more, you can staff up and scale for growth. Ohio's central location and reliable infrastructure will help you impress your customers. While Ohio's affordable cost of living and quality of life will excite your employees. Why survive somewhere else when your business can thrive in Ohio? Visit successinohio.com today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.